I've been promising to introduce you to somebody very special, somebody who's lived to beat the odds. She was the one person in 73,000 that you hear about in the statistics who caught a particular condition which instantly put her life in the balance, gave her a 5% chance of survival. That was nine years ago when West Australian nurse Lisa Burnett, who was just 24 years old at the time, was living it up from the sounds of things on a working holiday in England. And out of seemingly nowhere, she contracted meningococcal septicemia. She ended up fighting for her life as a patient in the hospital where she had literally clocked off hours earlier. Now, staying alive was one thing. There was also having both legs amputated, countless operations during five months in hospital in England. And that was all before she could concentrate on getting on with her life and the changes it would bring. And that's what she did back here in Perth, one step after another. Today, she's here in person to tell us this story that she's written. She's called it Learning to Walk. And as I said earlier, it's so lovely to meet you because I feel like having read your book, I've been with you every step of the way. Nice to meet you. Is that a common response? It is. It's been very heartwarming, the amount of people that have read my story and come back and said, I feel like I know you. And even very good friends have said, I found out things about you that I didn't know about you. At the time. Um, you were admitted to hospital within 18 hours of contracting the disease. This was in London. And then you were in and out of consciousness. So, and as you describe it, you know, your brain was pretty scrambled during that time and under siege. What do you remember of it now? What have you pieced together? I have fleeting memories of when my boyfriend at the time, um, who's now my husband, he came home after his night shift and found me at eight o'clock in the morning. And I do remember him coming into the room and trying to rouse me and talking to me. And I think I even responded and he then disappeared and called an ambulance. I don't remember anything about the ambulance journey, but I do remember being in the emergency department at the Royal London and them asking me whether I had a headache, which of course I had to say no because I didn't have a headache. You didn't have a headache, which is one of the, the prime symptoms that we're warned about with. Um... That's right. I didn't have a stiff neck or a headache because I didn't have um, the classic meningitis. I had the septicemia. And so what symptoms had you actually had? It started uh, about one o'clock the previous day and I was experiencing just acute unwell feeling that you get when you know you're getting the flu or you mm. know that you're getting something. Um, the dizziness um, to the point where I actually had to sit down. So I should have recognised then that something wasn't right. But you're um, a health professional and they mm. soldier on, don't they? Yes, definitely. <laughs> um, and most of us like to pretend that we're not sick when we really are. So. Oh, oh, not me. But <laughs> Although I did actually go home that day, which should have also told me that I really wasn't mm. well because normally I wouldn't, um, I would continue to soldier on. So, so, okay, so you had those flu-like symptoms. It wasn't until the next morning, in fact, that Aaron, your boyfriend, uh, phoned the ambulance, took you in. Uh, you've got memory of them saying, do you have a headache? But what else from there? What happened? Well, after that, they sedated me because I was far too unwell for them to do anything with me while I was conscious. So they sedated me and from then on, it was I was in ICU for about 16 days. When did they pinpoint that you had meningococcal septicemia? The ambulance men would have known it as soon as they picked me up, actually, because I had the widespread rash by then. Um, Aaron saw the rash. He saw the purple rash and he didn't know what it was. He's not a health professional. No, so. but thank God he, he acted well. He got you in the ambulance. So they were obviously radioing ahead to say you were coming in. What happens when someone has that disease? How on earth do they try and contain it? From the sounds of things, it goes like wildfire. It does. At that, at the, by the time the rash has appeared, the disease is, is in full cascade and it's very difficult to reverse it. 
It's incredibly simple to kill the bacteria. It's simple injection of penicillin, it's which is what they gave me. Yep. <laughs> but unfortunately, by the time you've got the rash, the, the bacteria is damaging the blood vessels in your peripheral, like in your fingers and toes, moving up your body. So the blood's leaking out and it's clotting. So there's all sorts of clotting problems going on in your body that is increasingly hard to reverse the further along you are. And that's why some people don't actually survive. So... In fact, is there like a window period in which you can stop it with the penicillin if you get in early enough? Yes, there is. What is yeah. that? Well, I couldn't answer that, actually. I'd have to ask a, a doctor that question. But Clearly, you'd gone over the time. It was something like 18 yeah, hours. Yeah, I was 18 hours along. By the so. time. So you're in a hospital, this rash is spreading, and it becomes, you call it like a black necrotic rash, don't you? Where did it get to? So I had the rash. By the time um, they managed to halt the progression of the disease and when I woke up 16 days later, I it, it actually took me quite a few months to realise where the rash was because I was unable to move for quite some time after mm. that time in ICU. So I couldn't actually see much of my body to know where the rash was. Was that a blessing though in some ways? It probably was. So I didn't look in the mirror for about three months, I think, um, until someone asked me to have a look. So I had the rash all down um, both my my arms, all over my hands, um, both my feet, up to all the way up my thighs, on my bottom um, and on my face. So really the only area that was spared was my trunk, which I was very happy about because that would have been extremely painful. Rash sounds like, you know, something benign almost. I mean, most people have had a rash, but this is something very different, isn't it? It's not really a rash. It's actually blood under the skin. So it's, it's, a rash is normally something that you get on top of the skin, but the meningococcal rash is blood leaking from the capillaries and clotting underneath the skin. And so the skin is in fact dying? The skin itself is dying, yep. Lisa, when did you realise, when were you told about the fact that you had to have both legs amputated? Well, I wasn't really told because they amputated after about five days in intensive care, so I really wasn't aware of what was going on. It was only when I woke up that I realised that they'd amputated my legs and I don't really remember a moment of realisation. Um, my mum says it's because she told me, you know, while it was happening what was going on. I'm not sure. <laughs> um, in fact, your parents who were both here in Western Australia were flown over So, and, and they were told um, they weren't giving very odds, good odds about your survival, were they? No, they were told when they got there that I may not survive. So um, it must have been terrible news for them. Apparently mum ended up going down to the emergency department herself because she felt so unwell when she saw my feet because my feet by then were completely black um, and withered and you know they were not able to save my legs. Um, it was 5% chance of survival which is what I said in the introduction. To, to hear that as parents must have been shocking. Have they told you sort of later you know how that was for them? I think the largest thing that my mum has talked about is that she she really felt a lack of support at that time and it could have been because they were away in a foreign country. They're not great travellers so they'd never really been anywhere. They, had, they didn't even have a passport. When Hell they were of a told. way to have your first trip, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, so it was. I mean, and so they did have the opportunity to see some of London while they were there but they were extremely reluctant to do that because they wanted to stay by my bedside the whole time. Lisa, when did you, because um, you said, you know, you're having all these things done to you, you're, you're having your legs amputated five days in, you're not aware of it. It was 16 days later that you woke up. But when did you really start to become aware of your body and what had happened to you? I think initially, um, probably two to three weeks after my first symptom, 
was when I started, I went to the ward after that, the vascular ward in the London hospital, and they started doing skin grafting and debriding operations to remove that necrotic skin and put other good skin on top. And I think that the awareness slowly started filtering in from then on. But I can honestly say now that it's been nine years that it takes a very long time to um, adjust to mm. the changes, physical changes. Um, and I've had other survivors come up to me recently who were only three, two or three years along and asking me, why am I still feeling, you know, why am I suddenly going downhill again emotionally? Mm. Mm. And I think that that's a rite of passage. I think that every meningococcal survivor must go through that after three to five years. I think for me, it was more around the four to five year mark when you sort of really come to terms with what you, what exactly you've lost 20... because the recovery mm. is so long. 25 minutes after 10 and you're listening to a very brave woman and that's Lisa Burnett um, who's written her story and it's called Learning to Walk Recovering from Meningococcal Septicemia. Tell me about the disabled tag. Um, in the book when I read about it you were horrified that suddenly you, you if that's the, the right take on it, that you know you were still who you were but suddenly you're being regarded as disabled and your life has completely changed. What were the the moments that it hit you hardest? I remember when I, and I think I talk about this in the book, when I first went down to the gymnasium that they had set up at the hospital for amputees and there was a big sign on the door saying amputee gym and I was suddenly realised that I was one of those amputees, that I was suddenly part of this group that I hadn't chosen to be part of. And so as that continued, I mean, how did that begin to change and when? I think that over the years I've realised that people have an impression about what it's like to live with a disability um, without actually realising that there's also a quality of life attached to that. So, well, When you say they have an impression of what it's like to live with a disability, tell me what that is. Well, I mean, I, I guess I wouldn't want to generalise, but I do think the media plays a lot on um, the pity factor. Mm -hmm. um, there's been numerous times over the years when I've seen people with disabilities put in positions where I feel um, their disabilities being highlighted and their achievements um, not highlighted. Mm if that makes sense. Mm. Tell me a bit more about that because I think that's brilliant to be able to, to, to learn more. Um, tell me about the, the situations you've seen. Well, for example, I was asked to be in a um, in a article uh, many, about four or five years ago advertising a vaccine for meningococcal. And at the time I didn't end up doing it, but the boy who did, when I saw the photo in the paper, I was really disappointed because it made him look, um, the, the camera angle was looking down on him, it mm. made him look disempowered and it made him look like he was having an utterly miserable life. And nobody's life is completely miserable. You know, every day there's good and bad things. It's not really that different when you have a disability. You describe one situation where I think you were in a pub and a, a woman came over to you and she kissed you on the head. And what did she say to you? I think she said something like, thank you for reminding me how wonderful the world is and how lucky I actually am. Um, and although it's really lovely that people can look at other people and acknowledge, you know, we're all immensely lucky living in a country like mm. Australia, at the same time, it, it's, it's that people don't realise how incredibly condescending that is. 
Was that hard to put up with on a, you know, on a frequent basis? I think that I'm a very proud person and I found it very difficult. What did you to, do? To be um, suddenly placed as the object of pity rather than the object of achievement. Mm. And how do you yeah. turn that around or do you? Well, for me, um, I'm not a physical person. I don't get involved in sport, so I haven't been able to undertake any superhuman um, disabled athletic activities. But for me, it's been more getting on with my career and um, achievements through that. Um, and through writing my own book and yeah, and that's having a, and my own intellectual interests, I guess. So getting back into work was obviously a big part of this. When did that happen? I was off work for about 18 months and I think that I was quite miserable for some of that time because I just had nothing to do and nothing to focus on. And physically too, you still had pain. It was still difficult physically, wasn't it? Yeah, I was still quite unwell and I don't think I realised even when I did go back to work and I look at photos of when I first started back at work, how unwell I probably looked to other people. I still mm. hadn't really put on a lot of weight and my scars were still very red. So I think I thought I was better than I was. <laughs> um, I need to ask you too about your, your partner who we mentioned right at the beginning. That was Aaron. Now, when you got um, meningococcal septicemia, you guys were in a very new relationship, weren't you? Yes, we'd only been seeing each other for a couple of months. Wow. So what happened? How did it go from then? Um, I think that, well, we actually weren't planning to stay together. We'd sort of, he was my housemate and we'd started seeing each other, but there was, we weren't, we were trying very hard not to allow it to become serious because I was going to South America and he was going to um, Chicago and we weren't really planning for a future together. But of course that all changed when I became unwell because he, he was put in a position where he felt he couldn't leave me in mm. such a state, um, which is an indication of his nature. He's a really lovely, kind person. But there's a dynamic in there too, isn't it? I mean, does that also put a burden on you being the one cared for? I think I felt that I didn't want him to come back to Australia with me because he's not Australian born either unless he felt that he would be happy and I didn't want him to feel obligated. Um, and I think I mentioned in my book that there was t were times when I realised that his friends in particular were viewing me as damaged goods all of a sudden. Oy. And to be imagined, to be viewed as damaged goods was just so incomprehensible to me and so frustrating. So, I mean, if you guys could survive this event and, you know, all of the consequences it implied, you must have an incredibly strong relationship. I think we do. Um, we, we, I mean, we, we moved from being um, seeing each other, having a fling, to being married almost straight away in, a, in an emotional sense, which has had its difficult times, you know. We missed out on all the fun stuff of getting to know someone. And being particularly carefree, I imagine, too. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the, the things that go through your book is your fears about what you won't, may not be able to have in the future, and one of those is children, and you watch other people's lives going on and so on. And as I was reading it, and at the end, by the end, you hadn't had any children. I was thinking to myself, oh, it's such a painful subject. Do I go into this or not? And I am so delighted to find out that you're pregnant and heading for your first baby due when? Um, Mid-October. That's wonderful. Yeah. Has the, how has the pregnancy progressed? Has, the, you know, um, has it been difficult in terms of the redistribution of weight and when you're walking on prosthetic legs, that kind of thing? Well, I'm about 28 weeks now, so I'm just starting to get heavy. And only last week I had to go back to my prosthetist to have some rebalancing done because when they 
adjust your legs, they adjust them in such a way that you can walk with a fairly even and steady, steady gait. Um, but once you're pregnant and you're heavier and naturally women would start to waddle a little bit, mm. but I wasn't able to waddle because my legs hadn't been adjusted to do so. So I was getting pain in various spots in my sockets. So they just had to adjust my legs to let me waddle, basically. <laughs> so I thought that was quite, quite interesting. You now have a waddling factor. It has been so lovely talking to you, and I really direct everybody to your book, which is called Learning to Walk. All the best for the baby, and thank you for visiting us. Thank you for having me on the show. Lisa Burnett, and Lisa's going to be our podcast of the day, so you can listen at, give us a bit of time though, it'll be a bit later on, abc.net.au slash Perth and make your way through to the morning program. Let's go to headlines now. Alan Knight's ready and waiting. Thanks, Geraldine. The Reserve Bank has given an encouraging assessment.